Welcome to the Recess Nurse Podcast, elevating emergency nursing one episode at a time. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Welcome to another episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. My name is Yunsi Dursa. We're going to jump right in today. So, one of the scariest presentations for me is a triple A. I always find them so scary. It's one of the hardest diagnoses to make, and it usually is diagnosed accidentally. And once it's ruptured, the prognosis is so poor and it's highly fatal. Um, there's also a lot of misdiagnosing with triple A. So sometimes a patient will come in, they look really, really good, and they're just complaining of back pain. And then we end up just thinking that it is back pain and they end up getting discharged home. If that patient ends up coming back a few days later or the next day, and you know, they're saying, Hey, I tried doing taking the NSAIDs and it didn't work. Uh, and now it's moving to the front, I would definitely take in consideration that this person is not necessarily meant for a fast track um, workup again. I think this one would probably require a little bit more of a full workup just, just, just to make sure. So what is a AAA? A AAA is an abdominal aortic aneurysm, and it's considered a true emergency. An aneurysm is a dilation of the arterial wall, and a true aneurysm will involve all three layers of the vessel wall. So if you can picture one of those really long, skinny balloons that you see clowns um, make balloon art for little kids, just think of one of those, and the long balloon is your aorta. If you put in a little bit of air in there, there's a little bubble that will that will appear. So just imagine that bubble being the aneurysm. At some point, it's going to stretch, 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 stretch. Well, our our arterial walls are not made out of rubber. So at some point, it will burst, and that's the rupture. So once the diameter of the aneurysm gets to three centimeters or greater, then it's considered a AAA. If it gets to five centimeters or greater, now you're looking into repair. So vascular will obviously be involved. There's also a pseudoaneurysm, which is a false aneurysm, and that can develop at the site of the previous AAA repair. Vessel catheterizations, trauma, or infection can cause this. A pseudoaneurysm will only consist of part of the vessel wall and then the surrounding tissue. But Part of that can actually spontaneous thrombose. So that is another complication that can happen. Most triple A's are discovered incidentally. You really don't have much to go on. Sitting at triage when that patient comes in, it's, it is tough. You have maybe one to three signs and symptoms that can point you towards the direction of a triple A. Um, and then I feel like this is one of those situations where it's okay to say to go with your gut feeling. I really hate saying that, but this is one of the rare times you're going to hear me say, use your gut feeling, but try to back it up with some signs and symptoms and a good story. So the signs and symptoms are sudden abdominal chest or back pain, hypotension, 
Sometimes the blood pressure might be a little bit higher or normal tensive, but that may just be the the kind of a last ditch effort of the compensatory mechanism, and then it'll drop back down to a low blood pressure. Once it remains low, like you're doing a bunch of blood pressures and this patient clinically is not looking well and they are persistently hypotensive, it's it's definitely associated with a poor prognosis and you could probably assume that the AAA has ruptured and you're thinking about blood products at this point. A pulsatile abdominal mass would be the third major sign and symptom. And you can palpate the AAA. Um, it's usually at the level of the umbilicus or above it. And if the ileal arteries are also aneurysmal, then you can probably palpate a little bit below the umbilicus as well. Check the patient's mental status. Are they diaphoretic? Did they have a syncopal episode? Look at the lower extremities. Are they blue? Because if they are, then you're looking at a ruptured aneurysm. Also, they may have referred pain. The flank, groin, inguinal, hip, thigh, and scrotum area are less common, but it occurs. If your patient has a ruptured AAA, you're looking at pain, hypotension, and and the mass. If you have all three of them present, then you have a ruptured AAA. If you have two out of the three, most likely that you have a ruptured AAA. Some people may only have one or even none of the above, and they will also have a ruptured AAA. So just to review, the signs and symptoms are sudden abdominal chest or back pain, low blood pressure, pulsatile abdominal mass, mental status, diaphoretic, maybe, maybe not, syncope, maybe, maybe not, and then referred pain, flank, groin, inguinal, hip, thigh, scrotum. Risk factors for a AAA, number one would be male, age 65 and above. I have a little problem with this because a lot of the studies uh, only involved men. So women were not part of the studies. And I think that if it was male or female and they were presenting with signs and symptoms, just consider them for a triple A. I wouldn't even make a difference between a male or a female um, at this point. I think that females do get triple A's and there just hasn't been enough studies because they were just excluded out of the population. Some of these people who were 65 and above that showed up with a ruptured AAA may have had these aneurysms prior to age 65. They were only discovered at age 65 and above. So I would say anybody who's a male or female who is 50 and above that's presenting with signs and symptoms should be considered for a AAA. The other demographic that I would say you should consider are women who recently gave birth. If they're coming in about, I don't know, three, five days after they gave birth and they're complaining of some unspecified chest, back, or abdominal pain, and now they're having a higher blood pressure, maybe in the 140s, just keep it in mind. Because generally speaking, you have a young, healthy female. She just gave birth. 
She has no comorbidities, no pre-existing conditions. Why is her blood pressure so high? Her blood pressure probably is in the low 100s. It should not be in the 140s. Find out, did she have preeclampsia? Did she have any labor complications? Um, I would definitely get more history and she definitely belongs into your recess bay for sure. Other risk factors are smoking, a familial history. So if somebody has a first degree relative with an aortic aneurysm, there's a very high chance that with the signs and symptoms, this person may also have an aortic aneurysm. And finally, peripheral arterial disease. If you suspect that your patient has a AAA and you have a pretty good story, you got some signs and symptoms, and there's something very ill-looking about your patient, they're pale, their mental status may not be great, they just are cool, clammy, um, they look really uncomfortable, and you've got all these signs and symptoms, you suspect that this patient has a AAA, please say something. Don't leave it to yourself. Don't say it to yourself and say, oh, you know, the doctor's going to figure it out. Communicate it with your providers. They may not have gotten to the same conclusion or they may not have gotten all of the story that you got. And your patient does not have the luxury of time. So talk to your providers and see, you know, hey, can you do a rush exam on this patient? Because I have a 68-year-old female. She's complaining of sudden abdominal pain, and then now it's in her back. She's diaphoretic. She's got a blood pressure of 80 over 40. She's really pale. She looks like crap, and she's got uh, cardiac history, you know, yada, yada, yada. So encourage your provider to do a rush exam. It's super easy for them. They can go right at the bedside. You're not moving the patient, you know, from the stretcher to CAT scan. So there's no increase in chances of rupturing the aneurysm if it hasn't already. They just pop that ultrasound probe on there. They can look to see if there's a dilation. So your provider was very impressed with your presentation and they said, yeah, you know, a rush exam sounds so appropriate. So they're doing a rush exam. You've already got your patient on the monitor. You've got your blood pressure cycling every three to five minutes and she is starting to become tacky, not looking great. Draw labs. You want to do two type and cross, get a full set of labs. You might as well get blood cultures. And in case it's not, if it's not an aneurysm and I would get your most experienced nurse out there to put in those IVs. You want really, really good IV access. 20 gauge is a minimum. You want a 20 gauge or 18 gauge medlock. And I would say you need two to three IV lines. This is not the time to bring in a new nurse, med student, or someone who's just not good at IVs and be like, yeah, why don't you go and try this IV? No, this patient doesn't have time for that. Get your most experienced nurse to put in that IV. Make sure that that IV is good because this patient is going to need a CAT scan with IV contrast. They'll probably need blood products. You don't want to be messing around trying to get an IV line 
and you're unable to deliver the products that she needs to maintain a blood pressure. So now your provider is telling you during the rush exam, oh, wow, this person does have an aneurysm and it's dilated to seven centimeters. Vascular will immediately be consulted and now you need to work hard. So what are you going to do? First thing you're going to do is you're going to get your patient naked. And I'm saying, but naked. Strip out all the clothing, uh, remove all the clothing, remove all the jewelry. Um, and, you know, do what you got to do. Put it all in a property bag, seal that stuff, uh, label it, give it to a family member if they're there. If the patient's anal times three, you know, get the patient's consent, get the name of the family member, the telephone number and the relationship, document all of that in the chart. If there's nobody there, then get hospital security or whatever your hospital protocol is and just get the belongings secured. You're also going to put both a travel monitor and a defibrillator monitor on that patient. The travel monitor is because you're going to be taking this patient to CAT scan immediately. The defibrillator monitor, if, you know, if that rupture, it, okay, if that aneurysm is seven centimeters, either it has already ruptured or it's going to rupture, or it may rupture when you're transferring that patient onto the CT table or back onto the stretcher or whatever it is. So you're going to have the defibrillator monitor on there because there's a very good chance that this patient will have some sort of uh, uh, hemorrhagic blood loss and just go into shock. And, you know, you, you just don't know. And you just want to have everything to be ready. Um, if the CAT scan is going to be delayed for whatever reason, then just keep the patient on all three monitoring devices. You don't want to be that person that said, oh, well, I will just switch it out when we go to CAT scan. No, CAT scan is going to be called. They're going to be notified that you're going to be pushing that patient in. And if they have somebody on the table, that patient needs to be off that table. But, you know, things happen and you, it may be 10 minutes or 15 minutes. So keep all three monitors on. It's fine. And then that way, when it's time to go, you just remove the bedside monitoring leads off and everything else is already ready to go. And you're just pushing that patient over to CAT scan. The next step, obviously, will be to get the CAT scan. And the CAT scan is imperative for vascular to do surgical repair. This is not the time to wait for the creatinine level, none of that stuff. So have your providers speak to whoever's in CAT scan and override any any kind of protocol that that may be needed for this patient so that they can get into CAT scan and quickly and also get the IV contrast. The only time I would say that there would be an exception is if you have a known renal failure patient, which have, you know, we know that they have a really, really high creatinine level. Um, you can use a regular CAT scan without contrast to diagnose this patient. Know your facility's protocol and know what vascular wants. I mean, it does, this, that's a little bit more tricky. But I would say that would probably be one of the few exceptions to the rule. Otherwise, anybody else, they're getting a CAT scan with IV contrast. 
The other thing that I think is really important is if you can run a quick point of care hematocrit level when you initially drew the labs just as a baseline, that is super important. Um, we want to know how much blood loss that there is, especially if a patient's AAA has ruptured. So if the hematocrit level is low, I would definitely, you know, call blood bank and let them know, hey, we've got a AAA possibly ruptured. Can you put a stat on that type and cross? I sent you the samples, put a stat on that just to get the cross, the type and cross thing going. If the hematocrit level is very low, then forget the typing cross. You're going to start massive transfusion protocol and you're going to be transfusing, a, you know, possibly a lot of uncrossed blood um, and other blood products. If your facility does not have any kind of a point of care um, that you can run yourself, then you should have some sort of a protocol where you can run Call, this, call labs and run it as a stat lab. If that point of care hematocrit level is something that's available to you, use it. Uh, you can really jumpstart your patient's treatment and you can fix the hypotension that this patient is presenting with because they have blood loss from the ruptured aneurysm. This patient can really use the blood products and you'll be able to stabilize the patient enough so that you can even get them up to the OR and hopefully they'll be able to get that surgical repair that they need uh, in order to stay alive. In terms of blood pressures, you want to maintain a systolic blood pressure of under 100 millimeters of mercury. I like to have a systolic blood pressure where there's a permissive hypotension of 90 millimeters of mercury, approximately. Um, the goal is to not make the rupture worse. So you don't want to get, you know, if it's a slow bleed, you don't want to increase that bleed. <laughs> um, at this point, you're really watching mental status because if, you know, 90 is not a solid number. Um, if, if your patient is not perfusing well, their mental status is going to change. It's going to be one of the first things you're going to notice to change. So really watch that mental status and watch the blood pressure. If you're transfusing blood, note that your blood pressure will probably increase. So be careful and conscientious while you're transfusing the blood that you don't go over 100 millimeters of mercury because that is just going to increase the rupture and you're just, it's like you're adding insult to injury. So aside from watching the mental status, I would also look at your heart rate and your O2 sat. Is there an increase in demand? Is this patient compensating? Is this person no longer compensating? And now you're looking at pressors? Do, you know, like, I mean, how bad is the situation? Look at the color of your patient. How pale is the patient? It, did that two units of PRBC, did that bring the color back? And that was all she needed? It was just like a little boost? Um you know, these are questions that you should be asking yourself while you're doing your continual assessments. Look into initiating your massive transfusion protocol, and there's a very good chance you may have to use a level one rapid infuser as well. Now, just as a reminder, if your patient is a female with childbearing age, I'll say up to 55, 
um, you're going to use O negative. Otherwise, O positive, you can use O positive on anybody else. All males and anyone who I would say 55 and older as a female can get O positive blood. They're not going to, the RH factor is not going to make a difference in this situation. Now, if you're transfusing blood, which there's a good chance you are, look at the clinical presentation and compare that with your hematocrit level. I would treat this like a trauma patient with hemorrhagic blood loss. So you're going to initiate massive transfusion protocol. And this patient really probably does not have the time to wait for a typing cross and matching blood. You send a typing cross for later on because this patient may have complications later on. And, you know, you just want to get everything wrapped wrapped up for the OR and then for the PACU and any other recovery situation for after afterwards. In your massive transfusion protocol, um, hopefully you will have PRBCs, FFPs, and platelets. And it'll be extra special if you get cryo. This is how I run my blood when I'm transfusing, transfusing in this situation. If I know that a patient is going to, if I'm pushing that patient to CAT scan and then, you know, we're pretty much going right up to the OR, I ditch the level one rapid infuser. There's no point. Um, I will have one line open for platelets. I have it wide open and I just have it running. Then the other line, I will have uh, one unit of PRBC and then I will follow it with one unit of FFP. And I continue to alternate this based on the fact that this person is losing a lot of blood and they're basically losing whole blood. So I am going to put whole blood back into the patient. I am not going to do four units of PRBC and then do one unit of FFP or two units of FFP. I'm not going to do any of that. I have the platelets running wide open on one line. And then on the other line, I have one unit of PRBC. I'll infuse that and then I'll infuse the um, FFP right after. And then we'll do a one-to-one ratio. I will be pressure bagging the PRBCs and the FFPs. And the reason being is I want to bring back as much circulating whole blood into this patient as quickly as possible. If for whatever reason, patient is going to be delayed to CAT scan. When I say delayed, I'm talking about anywhere between 15 to 30 minutes. So if it's going to take me 15 to 30 minutes before I'm even going to push that patient over to CAT scan, I will bring out that level one rapid infuser. You should be able to set this up in one minute or less. And now I am doing the ideal situation, which is transfusing blood, whole blood ratio rapidly, and the blood product is warmed. So through your level one rapid infuser, you will have PRBC unit warmed running through your level one rapid infuser. And then once that's done, you already have your FFP set up on the other chamber of your level one rapid infuser. So then you're running that immediately after. And then you just continue to alternate back and forth for a one-to-one ratio, giving the closest thing to a whole blood. And don't forget that you already have the platelets running in the other peripheral line. 
Now, remember, you are rapidly infusing blood products into this patient. You should be cycling your blood pressure every three to five minutes. Why? Because if you're rapidly infusing that many blood products that quickly, your blood pressure may not stay at 90. It may go up to 100. It might go up to 115. You really want to keep that systolic under 100. So even though you are rapidly infusing all these blood products, you have to be mindful of the blood pressure that is that is going on. So it's a little bit of a touch and go. Maybe you can have good communication and just keep an eye out for that blood pressure. If you don't know how to use a level one rapid infuser, this is not the time to learn how to use a level one rapid infuser. If you don't know how to use one, just use the pressure bags. They are easy to use. They are going to deliver the blood products quickly and learn how to use the level one rapid infuser at another time. This is not the time to tinker around and you know waste 10 to 15 minutes trying to set up a level one rapid infuser and then not giving the blood products to the patients. That's not the point. The point is to deliver the blood products to the patients and you wanna do it rapidly. So if you don't know how to use a level one rapid infuser, learn at a different time. Don't learn right now. If you have the pressure bags, just use the pressure bags. I mean, it's very simple and it's easy to use, so just use them. Now your patient is going to the OR and you have all this extra blood products that was sent based on your massive transfusion protocol, however it is, just put it in one of those basins, those large basins, and send the blood with the patient to the OR. This patient can rupture at any point. They can rupture when you're pushing that patient into the elevator. They can rupture while on the elevator. They can rupture while you're pushing the patient because of those little bumps on the road and um, in the road, bumps in the hallway. And they can rupture as you're transferring the patient from the stretcher to CAT scan, CAT scan back to the stretcher, and then the patient from the stretcher onto the OR table. They're going to need a lot of blood regardless. There may be a lot of complications during the surgery. You just don't know. So don't don't be that person to send the blood back to the blood bank and say, oh, this you know, the OR will take care of it. You know, they're gonna need the blood. Just give it to them. Just let them have it. Um, hopefully you can have this in your protocol. Um, and obviously just call blood bank, let them know that, you know, we sent the blood products with the patient. This is what I use, you know, document whatever it is that you use, however it is at your hospital's facility. Someone's going to ask me about pain. I just don't give any pain medications for these patients. Um, I'll be honest, the pain medication is not really going to do anything. You're going to worsen the hypotension and you're going to decrease your respiratory drive, and you're going to mess up your ability to assess someone's mental status. So I don't give any pain control for these patients, and I don't think you should either. Um, the goal is to get this patient up to the OR, and once they're in the OR, then let anesthesia take care of it. So finally, the definitive treatment will be surgical repair in the OR. The final piece that I would say is very important to get is the code status of the patient. 
when the patient comes in and you're getting that story, I would definitely ask them, just don't turn this into a pal care conversation. Just ask simply, hey, we ask everybody this. If your heart stops beating, what do you want us to do? Do you know what we what you would want us to do? I think it's very important to be clear because this patient can all of a sudden go into hemorrhagic shock and they can just die from blood loss. And you need to know, are you going to do everything you can to resuscitate this patient? Or is this one of those situations where you're going to just watch that blood pressure get lower and lower and lower? So we want to do what's right for our patient based on their wishes So get that code status. And if you're giving the report to your OR nurse, let them know. Communicate that with vascular. Communicate that with your providers. Communicate that to your techs um, because we've got great techs that will just jump in and start doing chest compressions for you. But if that's not what the patient wants, don't do them. So as a review, once the patient is confirmed that they are a very high suspicion, usually with a rush exam, it is helpful. Um, we're going to get our, get our stuff in order so that this patient can get up to the OR as quick as possible. So this requires stripping your patient naked, getting your patient on all the monitors that they need, and your provider is doing the rush exam at the same time where they already did it. We're going to get CAT scan involved and do whatever you need to do to get that patient over to CAT scan. You're going to obtain the code status. You're going to get your two to three IV lines and you're going to get all your labs, get your pre-op labs, try to get a point of care hematocrit level, maintain the systolic blood pressure to under 100 millimeters of mercury. You're going to prepare for any blood transfusion and initiate massive transfusion protocols as needed. Um, Equipment you might need is pressure bags, level one rapid infuser. You might have to put in a central line. You might have to put in an A line. Um, You can put in a Foley. If you have the time to do it, just slip one in really quickly. Not a problem. Um, Pain medication, I don't give any. And finally, we're going to document everything. Just make sure you document all the units of blood products. I would separate them out by PRBCs, FFPs, platelets, and cryo. And document the status of the patient when they left your ER. Everything else should have been documented um, or you you know come back to it and document it right away. So hopefully you're able to get that patient up to the OR and they're able to get their surgical repair. This is a good place to stop on the discussion of triple A's. Thank you so much for listening. I will also be attending Das Mach, the conference in Berlin that's coming up in a few weeks. Sorry, I made you listen to my awful German accent. Um, If any of you are also going to be attending the conference, I would love to meet you. So feel free to introduce yourself. There will also be another episode in three weeks. So stay tuned. My name is Yunsi. Peace.
You've just listened to an episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Check out the website, recessnurse.com, for show notes, a place to leave your comments, and start a conversation. You can also follow me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook. 